All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Today, today we're looking at a hero's weaponry. And uh, many of you probably have favorite superheroes. And, and I want to go through a couple of those superheroes. And, and I think you'll recognize some of the weaponry that they used at times. Of course, Iron Man had his suit. Wonder Woman had her or has her bracelets and lasso. Captain America has his shield. Thor has his hammer. And then there's Batman. Batman had his utility belt. How many of you remember Batman, the TV series? You remember that one? It's the only show that you could watch and hear the word Jeepers, Batman. Uh, last night, it was actually on. How many of you saw the MeTV network? I love that. And you can go back and watch all the oldie goldies. And, and last night, I was flipping through the channels, and there was Batman standing right there. And I was like, yes. My wife was like, can we watch something else? Like, no, we're watching Batman tonight, baby. Yeah. So, so anyway, we were, we were sitting there. And, and, and I mean, it is. It is dorky. It's corny. But, but, but all these superheroes... What's interesting about them is they, they had something that they could go to that made them successful. It, here in chapter 4, Peter continues to address those who are being persecuted. And in verse 1, he's about to introduce a weapon that can help Christians be victorious when they are persecuted. When they're going through pain and suffering. So look at the introduction down on your outline. Living for Jesus is not easy. If you've... Uh, had a faith in God through Jesus Christ for some time now, you know that that is true. I want you to think about it. We're supposed to live for reasons beyond this world. Our perspective as Christians should be eternal, not temporal. Living for the things that are not seen. We're called to do all these things. And then one of the most difficult parts is it, it seems that we're always going against the flow of this world. We're going against the way the world thinks of things, the way the world does things. It's almost like we're swimming upstream. Have you ever been out in the ocean and the tide be real strong? And of course, your goal is to, to, to get uh, uh, on the other side of where the waves are breaking and, and you're swimming. And if the tide's real strong, you can swim and swim and swim and exert all this energy and look up and realize what? You haven't gone anywhere. There's one a time or two growing up on the coast where I would go in, and I remember I was uh, just trying to get familiar with a surfboard, and by the way, it didn't work out too good for me, but anyway, I was trying to get out there, and, and I remember on several occasions, the wave just knocked me back, and the, the board would be up there on the shore. I didn't hook it up right or whatever, and it was so frustrating because I felt like I was going against everything to be able to get to where I needed to be. The Christian life many times is that way, especially as it relates to this world. And so look on your outline. In order for us to bear suffering and persecution, we must arm ourselves. However, we do not arm ourselves with worldly weapons. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Do you know what that means when it says they're not carnal? They're, they're not done in, the weapons are not of the flesh. The weapons are not of this world. And then he goes on, he says, but mighty in God, the weapons that we have are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. 
And so when it comes to the weapons that we are attempt to have, when it comes to this world, we can't rely on those things that are of this world, nor can we rely on those things that are in and of ourselves. We've got to look beyond that. So look on your outline. We do not arm ourselves with worldly weapons. We arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. I mean, that's something that I guarantee you, if you were sitting there thinking today and you said, okay, what is my weapon when it comes to to dealing with persecution? Many of you probably would have named different things. This may not have been on the list, but Peter tells us it's important. So, So what does it mean to arm ourselves with the mind of Jesus Christ? Look on your outline. It means to discover the mind of Christ. You've got to discover what that means. The, uh, if you look at chapter 4, verse uh, 1, the, right there immediately, we've seen this over and over again as we've made our, our way th- verse by verse through this book. We see the word therefore. And I've told you many times what therefore is therefore is to point you back to a thought that's already been raised. And Peter and Paul and all the writers, basically, they use that time and time again to say, okay, here's what we've been talking about, but I've got more information about it. I want to share more things with you concerning that. Well, Peter's doing the same thing here. He's referring back to verses 8 through 22, uh, where he's talking about the persecution, and he's going to continue that thought into today. And so look at chapter 4, look at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, in his body, Arm yourselves also with the same mind. Now, now think about that. That's our weapon. <laughs> That's how we deal with persecution. That's how we deal with those who mistreat us. We're to arm ourselves with Christ's mindset, with his mind. Now, hold your place here and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Now, as you turn, listen to this. The Greek word... Uh, the Greek word or the Greek phrase translated arm yourselves was used of a soldier putting on his armor and taking up his weaponry. We as Christians are soldiers and all around us there is a battle that rages. Now think about that. Some of you may have thought, not have thought about that when you woke up this morning. But we need to come to terms with that. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're in a battle. <laughs> You're fighting against it. There's something going on. And, and, and the thing that we need to understand is the danger is real and the enemy is determined. Now think of this. Each day as we go out into our day, we need to realize that we're going to war. Ephesians chapter 6. Look at verse 10. Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power. Does it say of your might or in the power of what the world can offer? says the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the schemes, the, the, the things that the devil throws at us. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, we could dismiss that and say, you know, Jesus or Paul here was talking about what Jesus went through, what the disciples went through, what those people back there in the first century went through. But guess what? He's also talking to us on what we're going through. The average Christian does not realize That as they continue to live their lives before God and live God's word, the average Christian does not realize that they're in a battle. And they're in a battle that is very serious. And and there is an enemy that is very determined. 
Now, what's interesting about what we see here in this text is is that Paul is telling us that the battle raging is not necessarily those things that we can see in front of us. I mean, we look at our world and we can see the evil. We see the culture changing. We see all these different things. But what Paul is trying to tell us is there's something going on behind the scenes that is causing all this. And by the way, there's things that are going on behind the scenes that's actually in our life that we can't necessarily see, but we can sense the influences that are coming. He's saying these things are those things you cannot necessarily see. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, what do you do? To stand. The phrase here, there's four times in which he's going to say either stand or withstand in this. He's not talking about the fact that we go on the offensive. He's not talking about that we go after the enemy. He's not talk- we don't do that. What does he say? He say, we stand. But let me tell you what the average Christian is doing in this day and age. They're starting to retreat. And you know what they're retreating from? The Word of God. The Word of God. And, and what's so amazing about that is, is, is we've been called to take those stands. We've been called to to, to be people of conviction, to be people who are principled. And so what's happening is Christians are caving in. And and you know why they're doing that? I've seen that happen. I've seen the tendency actually happen in my own life. If I wasn't determined and stuck with God's word, it's because we don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to be seen different than the world at times. And that's a big mistake. He goes on. He says, verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith which, uh, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Everything that he sends your way, all those thoughts, all those mindsets, all those times he's caused you to try to doubt God's word. All those times in which he's tried to convince you to to just cave in in this area. He says it's going to take your faith to get you through that. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you think your faith was exercised? I mean, do you realize that your faith, it does need to be strong? How many of you are agreeing that the longer we live, the more you're seeing things play out, that our faith needs to be, it needs to be exercised to the fact that it's even strengthened? Now, one thing that we know about our faith, faith comes from God. But did you know we have a responsibility when it comes to our faith? That we exercise our faith. That we attempt to strengthen our faith. And the only way that can happen is it's got to be used. I think about the carpenters that we saw here in this video. I mean, these people demonstrated something to me. And Wesley kind of alluded to it in his prayer. They were people who were willing to leave what they have known for many years, take their family on the other side of the world and and do ministry because they felt God was calling them. Let me tell you something. They exercised their faith many times. We don't do that. It's important that we do that. He goes on. He says, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which is the truth of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Basically, what he's saying is this. When times get tough, when the persecution is turned up, when the suffering's there, the mistreatment is there, you continue to persevere. Persevere. Continue to do what you know to be right. To continue to hold on to that which you know to be true. 
So many times, people, however, I see caving in. There's been pastors over the years that I've heard of that used to be pastors of principle and conviction who stood solidly on, solidly on God's word. Five years later, you see that they don't even believe half of God's word any longer. I'm talking about well-known, influential pastors. And then there's those uh, that I've known personally. And, and I remember one person in particular just years ago, they were talking about how God's word is our only hope and how we need to stand on God's word. I know this person fairly intimately. And, and, and now we come a couple years later and I overheard her talking to someone the other day. And it, it's like she's starting to doubt everything that she knew as truth, as con- her own conviction as principle. Starting to cave. Starting not to hold up and stand solidly on the truth of God's word. I want you to turn back to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be there the rest of the time. I want to kind of change gears because Paul was over here telling us all this armor. But then Peter kind of sums it up. Peter exhorts the saints to arm themselves with the same mind Christ had when he was being mistreated. When he was being punished, when he was being persecuted. The idea of arming oneself with the mind of Christ, listen, is a matter of denying oneself. The problem with most Christians is this. They don't deny themselves. It, it, you got to have that. Listen, prosperity preaching that you hear on the, on the airwaves, on the radio, on the TV. Listen, you don't hardly ever hear anything about denying yourself. But that's what Jesus taught. Listen to what he said in Luke chapter 9. Then he being Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily. That means there's, there's a whole idea of something being crucified daily, which is ourselves, and follow me. You know what he's telling us here? He's saying, that's the, if you really want to get down to it, the only way you can truly follow me is to crucify yourself, deny yourself, and come after me. That's not a popular message in our day and age, is it? We don't want to hear that. But that's what God's word says. As Christians, listen, we need to put our selfishness behind us and arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. Now, the mind of Christ in this sense means this. It means having the same intentions as Christ, having the same courage as Christ, having the same attitude that Jesus embraced when he dealt with his own suffering and his own persecution. He's saying, Peter is saying, why don't you let that same mind be in you when you're mistreated, when you're persecuted? Last week, I made the statement, and I've had several people come up to me and say, you know something, I never thought of it that way, but we're, we're living in a world. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're standing on truth, let me, let me just tell you what's going to happen. And, and I don't mean to be a downer, but it's just true. It's, it's the way things are trending right now. But do you know what's going to start happening? The chasm between God's truth, like I said last week, and what the world believes and the way the world conducts itself Do you realize that chasm is is getting deeper and wider? The deeper the chasm, the wider the chasm between those two things, the more likely the intensity of the persecution is going to be raised. And we got to be ready for it. Y'all, it's coming. And I'm not just, I don't, I don't like the gloom and part, doom parts of, uh, of Christianity and all that. But listen, it's be, it's addressed all through God's word. And we see it right here with Peter. Now, now how, however, if we were to take on the mind of Christ, there's one thing that really stands in the way. Look on your, out, on your outline, and that is sin. We need to desist from sinning. 
It says in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with his same mind, with, with his thought processes, the way he came about it. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Basically, it's that whole premise of this. If you're doing one thing that you know to be right, then you're automatically not doing that thing that is wrong. You see what I'm saying? Did your mom ever tell you, if you just keep doing what's right, you'll never have to face what's wrong or deal with what's wrong? Just do what's right. So what does this verse mean? It does not mean that suffering alone cleanses people from their sin. The best way to look at this verse is that the person who suffers for doing what is right demonstrates a willingness to make a clean break with sin. They're not embracing the world. They're not embracing the world's mentality. They're embracing what Jesus Christ has to offer. They're coming into that mindset of Christ. So when we die or desist from from sinning, it is a matter of discovering oneself. Now, let me tell you one thing that God's Word says over and over and over again. It seems to be a theme that Paul has almost in every letter that he writes. And that is this. Before Christ, we were enslaved to sin. That means when sin was, 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 was uh, the master of our life, we, were, we, we, we almost had to do what it, it did. Our desires went that way. The influences were so strong at those times, and, and we went that way. However, now Jesus is our master and not sin. We don't have to live in sin any longer. Remember the context of what Paul, Peter's writing here? Listen, Peter has been discussing the subjects of suffering and submission. Now face it, most of us do not deal well with ridicule, mockery, abuse, mistreatment, and persecution. Raise your hand. How many of you don't deal well with that sometimes? That's hard to take, isn't it? And, and we don't do well with it. Many of us give in to the pressures of the world and reward our flesh by sinning. Or we can refuse to give in to the pressures of the world or the pressures of our flesh and reward our spirit. Now, if we refuse to give in to sin and put on the mind of Christ or put on the mind of Jesus, we deny our flesh, we deny sin, yet we may suffer. We may suffer. And and I'm just going to be honest with you. A lot of people have the mentality that it's just easier to cave in. It's just easier to get, just go and sin. Just go for it. Y'all, it may be easier at that moment, but the consequences are never easy from it. And we got to have that mindset. Then, listen, our suffering for Christ delivers us from sin and ceases us and causes us to cease from sin. Think of this. When we do the right thing rather than the wrong thing, we are living for Jesus and His causes and His righteousness. It is then that we begin to establish a pattern of obedience in our lives. Listen, the person... How many of you are amazed at the fact that people have been persecuted down through the ages and they are willing to be executed for the cause of Christ and they just put themselves there? How many of you look at those scenes and think to yourself, I don't know if I could ever do something like that. These weren't people who woke up one day and said, I think I'm going to start taking this Christian faith serious. And that particular day they did. No, these were people who a long time ago made the commitment to stand on God's word. To be people of principle. To be people of conviction. And, and, and they stood with God. And they stood on God's word. And as a result, many of them faced persecution that led to their own execution. And guess what? Every one of them would tell you, the ones that I've read about will tell you what a privilege it was to die for the cause of Christ. And yet we look at it and we think, oh my goodness, how does someone even do that? 
You know, <clears throat> let me say this. Suffering purifies us. We've already seen this in 1 Peter. He's already said that. And it identifies us with Christ. Listen, when life is easy, we sometimes drift into selfishness and sin. How many of you notice that to be true? How many of you notice when, when the temperature turns up in our life and we're going through a real difficult time? How many of you have noticed how we pull in close to God at that time? You ever done that? Oh, yeah. Pull in close. You, you see, suffering many times changes our perspective, our values, and even our goals. Romans 8 says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's not talking about physical death. It's talking about the real life can be a reality in your life. Listen, unless the Christian is militant about crucifying the flesh and putting to death the deeds of the body, he or she will not have the spiritual fortitude to stand against persecution. You've got to make a determination. Next, arming yourselves, ourselves with the mind of Jesus Christ means to do God's will. Look at verse 2. It says that he, the person who ceased to sin, the person who's identifying with the mind of Christ, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, that means being under the influence of the lust of men, but for the will of God, to be under the influence of the will of God. And so here in this verse, Peter is contrasting the will of God and the lust of men. In verse 1, he stated that the believer is armed with a proper intention, strengthened by his faith, with a firm resolution to resist sin and obey God. Now we are able to stand against fleshly desires and resist them. We are to abandon fleshly desires and seek to discover and do the will of God. Now let me just say this. You cannot follow the lust of men and the will of God at the same time. The Bible over and over again, Paul makes it very clear in Galatians chapter 5 that these two things are contrary to one another. That means they're warring against one another. It means they're moving in the opposite direction. You'll never see the two merged together. You'll never see it. They're moving in opposite directions. So in verse 2, the lust of men means unlawful and evil human or fleshly desires. The desires that cause war in our souls. Now for the believer, the will of God includes this. Doing good works. Treating others with respect and love. Honoring God through one's life. Being prepared to suffer for doing good. Rejecting evil desires. Rejecting shameful behavior. You know, it's amazing. Sometimes someone will come up and they'll say, uh, I've been trying to determine what God's will is for my life. Do you think I need to marry this particular person? Another one will come up. I've been trying to determine what God wants me to do with my life. Do you think I need to go in this field? You think God is telling me to go in this field? Now, let me just say this. I think God, first of all, let me ask you a question. Do you think God, do you think he cares about the details of your life? Oh, yeah, the Bible indicates that he does. But so many times we're so called up in those specific things of who to marry, what to do with our life, that we totally miss that there's a bigger picture of what God's will is all about. Time and time again, I'll refer them back and I'll tell them, listen, God's will is much bigger than what you do with your life and who you're going to spend your life with. It's much bigger than that. It, here's what I've tried to tell people. You lock in to the will of God to do what you know is the will of God, which is the Bible's filled with telling you what that is. 
And God will begin to unfold and reveal himself in those situations. I've found that to be true. But so many times, here's what we want to do. Oh, God, just give me this specific thing. And we disregard all this other stuff over here that we know to do. We just want to know this specific thing. And I'll tell you, most of the time, we don't necessarily hear from God. (laughs) Because we're not doing what we already know that we should be doing. Now, listen. When we do all this, the Bible says, look, and this is how this plays out. Romans 12, 2. Look on the screen. It says, do not be conformed to this world, the way the world thinks, the way the world operates. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing of your mind. Its implication here is the word of God. The truth of God is renewing your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Okay? And so that's how you go about that. So let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you, give me examples of what the lust of men is all about, you could probably give me all kinds of examples. This, 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 this. Oh, we know that. But what about the will of God? Well, the Bible says you've got to do certain things according to this, this, that those things may be proven to you, that you experience those things. And that's what we see here. Next, arming ourselves with the mind of Jesus Christ means to die to past sin. Listen, a Christian's life should be defined by one word, transformation. Literally meaning we are not the same person we used to be. Occasionally, I'll have someone say this. Hey, I just want to tell you, God has done a work in my husband's life. And here's how they'll say it. They'll say it like this. I hardly even recognize him anymore. Now, did their physical, 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 did their physical uh, uh, traits change? No, they're talking about the person that they really are has changed. That's what this is all about. Look at verse 3. It says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime. That means those who have come to know Christ. We've spent enough of our lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. So here's another contrast, the will of God or the will of the Gentiles. Now, we know that a Gentile is anyone who's not of the Jewish faith or is not a Jew. Now, that's the way we know it. But in Scripture, it's used several different ways. A Gentile in Scripture sometimes is a reference to the lost. It means those who are not in a covenant relationship with God. That's what it means. Okay? So it says we we don't need to be spending time, our times, like those of the Gentiles. But it's back when we walked in the lewdness, lust, drunkenness, rivalries, drinking parties, and abominable abominable idolatries. Now, what this is talking about is this the face value. The people in the first century would have understood this immediately when, when this was written. What would happen back in the first century, there were those who were worshiping all these different idols. All these what they call gods. And the way they would worship is found here in verse 3. They would have drunken parties. They would have all these different things that were going on. That's how they worship their gods. So to the people in the first century, this is a reference to those worship parties, so to speak, with these false deities. But for us today, what is this? He's talking about get away from that past life. Get away from those things that used to define you. When people thought of you, this is what came to mind. You need to be moving in a different direction, and that's what it is. So it's a matter of dying to sin. Romans 6, 6 says this, Knowing this, that our old man, that's before Christ, was crucified with Jesus, that the body of sin might be taken away, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We don't have to live like that any longer. 
Okay? Verse 3 also implies that before we came to Christ, when we were living in sin, we were wasting time. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have, waste, have wasted a lot of your time or a lot of your life? Yeah. We, we've done some of that, haven't we? That's what he's challenging them with. Peter is instructing us to make our time valuable. Ephesians 5 and 16 says, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Listen, the behaviors mentioned in verse 3 do not honor or please God. These are attitudes and actions that belong to people who live in darkness. Clearly, the behaviors in verse 3 have no place in a Christian's life. However, Peter is not saying that a Christian cannot enjoy life. Listen, I've been around Christians who know how to enjoy life. And, and they have fun. And it's some of the purest fun that you can be a part of. So it's not that. He is warning us a behavior where we might lose control and abandon restraint in pursuit of pleasure. That's what he's addressing here. So the bottom line is this. He says that we are to live transformed lives. Meaning this. The people who knew us before Christ... See a difference in us because now we know Christ. That's the transformation. Next, arming ourselves with the mind of Christ means to distance yourself from sinners. Now, Peter is not saying that we should not witness to unbelievers. But we should not be swayed to live as the unbeliever. One of the greatest privileges I ever had was uh, the first nine years here at Putnam, I was a youth pastor. I dealt with students. And one of the greatest privileges I had was I got to see a lot of students give their heart to Jesus Christ. Many times, and many of you have been students, you know what I'm talking about, many times it would happen at camp. We would go to camp, we'd get away from all the pressures that surrounded us, all away from all the peer pressure, and we'd go to this camp. Uh, people would, would stand on the program and expound the Word of God, and, and it's almost like the, the students there were receiving what God had to say to them, and many of them, uh, their lives were radically changed as a result of some of those weeks. Now, what's interesting about all that is this. Sometimes I would talk to them, and here's what I'd tell them. And some of them found this to be true. Now that you've given your life to Christ, you need to realize that there's an enemy out there that doesn't like this. So every time you start making your move towards Christ and doing what he's called you to do, there's going to be some intensity of battle that takes place in your life. That's just true. I'm sorry. Okay? Second of all, you need to be careful of those things that can influence you. And, and for some of them, I told them, I said, those friends you hang out with at, with at school, some that are a bad influence, some that you know they're not, they don't walk the way that you walk and do the things that you do, it's okay. You probably do need to be close enough to see that, uh, that they can observe that there's a difference in you, but you cannot be swayed by them. And if you start to be swayed by them, you need to remove yourself from them. Because a young Christian needs to learn how to defend himself and defend what he now believes. And so... There's all that. Now, let me, let me say this. We're still called to reach them, but not at the expense of us being sucked back into that lifestyle. So, here's what he says. Look at verse 4. In regard to these, they think it's strange, those who are part of the partying and all that scene. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, and therefore now they speak evil of you. Now think about that. Before you used to run with them. Did the same things they did. Now you don't. And guess what? Now there's some mistreatment coming your way. There's some injustice 
There's that whole idea. So really, it's a matter of deciding to be peculiar. The Living Bible is a paraphrase of God's Word, so you've got to be careful with it, but it does a great job with this verse. It says this, Of course, your former friends will be very surprised when you don't eagerly join them anymore in the wicked things that you once did. And they will laugh at you in contempt and scorn you. And y'all, that is so true. The word picture of the phrase flood of dissipation that we see in verse 4 is being overwhelmed by a world where wicked pleasure and passion are the norm. It describes a a world where the only thing that matters in life is total self-gratification. It's the idea, the idea is unrestrained indulgence. It describes a world where the believer denies himself or herself of nothing. I'm sorry, the non-believer denies himself or herself of nothing and then thinks that the behavior of a Christian who follows God's word is strange. That's the difference there. You see, the world will ask us, why would you deny yourself of this thing or this person or this experience? They may say something like this. Why would you go to church on Sunday when it's the only day you can sleep in? Why would you give money to the church when you can spend it on yourself? Why would you be so foolish as to tell the truth when a lie will create so much less stress for you? How could anyone suggest monogamy in this day and age? That's what they say. When a person comes to Christ, they are changed. And from the world's perspective, they are peculiar. So look at verse 5. Here's something that's ironic about all this. Verse 5. They will give an account to him, to Jesus, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now in verse 4, what he's saying, he's building the case that, that but when you come to Christ, they're judging you. But here's what's ironic about it. One day they're going to be judged by the one that you serve. That's the irony of it all. So... This is the ultimate irony. They judge you, but in turn, they'll be judged. They judge you because you know and love Jesus, and yet they will be judged by Jesus himself. Lastly, arming ourselves with the mind of Jesus Christ means to decide to follow the example of past saints. Let me just say this. One of the greatest things that's ever happened in my life, apart from Jesus Christ coming to be my Lord and Savior, as it it relates to my Christian walk, is the fact that there have been people who have lived out what that walk should look like. There are people in my life that I look at as mentors. There are people that I look at that challenge me, that I would say are champions. There's people in my life right now who champion what I think a good prayer life should look like. There's people in my life who champion what it means to be a witness, a bold witness for the Lord. And, and, and God has placed these people all around me. And so it's important that we not only stand on the truth of God's word, I think we visually need to see that there are other people who are doing this. I tell you, let me just tell you one thing that thrills me. And if I had a bunch of, if I had a room uh, full of people who are 50 years of age and older, I guarantee you it, it does the same thing for them. Is when, when some of you who, who we called millennials last week, who are teenagers or in your 20s, let me tell you one of the greatest things that we as older people like to see. That even though you're in the minority with your friends, you take a stand for Jesus Christ. Y'all, when you see someone who, who's in the minority like you guys are now, because you believe that God's word is what it says, you believe what it says it is, you believe it is truth, and you attempt to live your life accordingly, and when you do that, 
Listen, that, that inspires, that challenges us. And, 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 and don't take that for granted. So look at verse 6. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to, the, to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Now, this, this, is a, this verse is very difficult, but here's what it means. The phrase, those who are dead, refers to Christian believers who have already died, who set a beautiful example for us all. Okay, that's what that means. They are people who are now dead physically, but alive with God in the spirit. Those who were judged by the world, some of them even lost their life as a result. They suffered and died because of their faith, but are now living with God. He's saying, Peter's saying, look to them. You remember them examples? Look to them when you're attempting to do what God's called you to do. And then Hebrews chapter 9. The Bible says this about all our lives. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after that, what? The judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. You know what that literally means? When he says apart from sin, he's offering those people hope. The writer of Hebrews is offering hope that there's going to come a time where we'll be separated from those who persecute us. The chasm between the way the world is thinking and living for God's truth will be fixed. It will be taken care of. And he's going to settle the score once and for all. So here's the application. Those who have left their mark on this world for the cause of Christ followed these simple yet difficult verses found in 1 Peter chapter 4. To live a heroic existence, each of these statements must be practiced in our lives. If you're someone who wants to be exactly what God's called you to be, to be the salt and light to this world, these things that we discussed this morning that Peter pointed out must be evident in your life. Now, one of the last things that Paul wrote before his execution. You do know he lost his life. Peter did too, the writer of this. He lost his life too for the cause of Christ. But listen to what Paul wrote. He says this. And, and, and when you hear this, I want you to... It's different than I think many of us Americans who are comfortable. We have a hard time relating to this. But here's what he says. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day when he comes back. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Do you know what, you know what Paul was writing here? He was telling us that he was homesick for, for the things of God. He was homesick. He was ready to go home. You ever been around a, a, a dear saint that's lived a full life? I've been around this a lot. In which they'll just tell you with a big old smile on their face. You'll see this. I'm just ready to go home. Homesick. Did you know that persecution and suffering, every time I've seen it this way, makes us hungrier, makes us more hungry for, for God and what he has provided for us? You turn up the heat of persecution, you turn up the suffering in a person's life, their whole perspective changes. They leave what they would consider the temporal and they look to those things which are eternal. But it's just a matter of being homesick. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you homesick? Are you weary? Are you tired? The Bible says don't grow weary. Don't grow tired doing the things that are right. But then he says this, that there is going to come a day when it's all going to be made right. I'm going to take care of it. You hang in there. I'm going to take care of it. That's God's promise. Would you stand to your feet, please?
Father, we just thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for Peter who wrote this and the insight that he had. And, of course, your spirit leading him to write this. And, Father, I just pray for this room of people who are standing here right now. Who are, Lord, I hope that we all came here this morning looking for hope. Looking for hope in you, Father. And, Lord, help us to realize that our only hope is in you. Through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as our Lord and Savior, I pray today will be the day to give the heart to you. Lord, if there's someone here who says, I don't, I don't want to use the weapons of, or the weapon of the mind of Christ. I want to do it my way. When someone hurts me, I want revenge. I, I'm not going to bring forgiveness. I'm going to, it's unforgiveness. Father, help them to realize that those are the wrong weapons. Those are not the weapons that you've given us. You've given us the weapon of the mind of Christ. Lord, I pray that be our desire. Lord, if there's someone here doesn't know, that, that believes this is a church home that you called them to be a part of, we welcome them also, Lord, today. But if you're calling them to this place, we thank you for what you desire to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Gary, myself, and Jonathan will be here at the front. We just ask you to do what God's calling you to do. Maybe you need to get around.